So obviously we're starting a new series. And Lucas made this incredible graphic. Give it up for Lucas. Beautiful, beautiful. Um, so what is going on behind, if you can kind of see, there's like texture to it. That's actually the picture of Jesus teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and then you have this one little word right here, Ormus, that's below it. And that's probably the thing that we've gotten most questions about when people have seen this graphic. It was like, what does that word mean? Well, here's what this means. So it's a Latin word. And it literally means, let us pray. All right? So it's not like we're super creative here. We just take a little word and we, it's, this is what it means. Let us pray. And it's commonly been found, this word, Ormus, has commonly been found at the front of historical liturgies and prayers in the life of the church. Um, it's something that they've, the whole entire programs about what it looks like and how you learn how to pray have been built around this word. And so what you actually see in Oremus is this compacted little statement that is at the very beginning of historical liturgies or prayers is both an invitation to prayer as well as a learning of how to pray. And so we've entitled this series after this word Oremus. Because we believe that it, encapsul it encapsulates Jesus' thoughts on prayer holistically. See, Jesus both invites us to pray as well as instructs us in how we pray. So here's a couple of um, verses just to kind of give you some background texture um, to what is how we're getting this. So here's an invitation. You see this in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus instructs his disciples, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. So he's laying before his disciples at the Sermon on the Mount as he's speaking and he's preaching before those that are gathering around him. Hey, I'm inviting you to come and talk with your God, to have relationship with your God. Ask, seek, and knock. There's an invitation, an open invitation for you to come, but he doesn't just leave them there. All right? It's not just this open invitation and then like, but how do we do it, right? There's not this just, I don't know how to step into this. I don't know how to talk to God. He's not here physically or present in front of me. So what does this look like? How do I do this? Well, he goes in Matthew chapter six and he says, when you pray, and then he moves into the Lord's prayer where he gives us instruction of what it looks like for us to speak and talk with this God who's created us who wants relationship with us for us to step in to fellowship with him. And so what I want for us as a church is I want us to lean into this. I want us to lean into both the invitation as well as the instruction that Jesus gives to us as his followers to come and speak to God and then also pray in the way that he's instructed us to pray. So look, we're doing this, we've been meeting for six to seven months at this point, and so like we're doing this. Look, I want us to be a praying church. I want us to be a church that takes up Jesus' invitation to come and speak with God, to come and follow his instruction and in how we carry out our prayers in order for us to have deep relationship with him. If you look throughout the Bible as well as human history, every church that has taken up this invitation as well as the instruction to come and talk with God in prayer, you see at least two things. You see two things present within the life of that church. One is a deep affection for God, a deep 
overwhelming affection, not just in a singular person, not just in a pastor, but in the whole congregation, there's this deep affection, this deep love for this God. But then you also see wide influence. A church that takes up this invitation from God to come and speak with him and talk with him doesn't just stir your own soul, but it also the Lord opens his ears to these churches. And as you're praying over your city, as you're praying over your neighbors, as you're praying for your family members, as you're seeking to know God more deeply, there's a deep affection that he gives this church, but then he also gives them a wide influence in the life of this city. And so look, this is, if I could think of any type of legacy that we could have in the life of our church, it would be this. That we're a church that has deep affection for God, but also has wide influence in our city because we take up Jesus' invitation to pray. Like I want people, when they come to our church, like, Axe body spray comes before you, before you walk into a building. I want them to sense the affection that we have for our God. That it almost goes before us. You know what I'm saying? Like there's this deep stirring inside of us that I want to know this God that's loved me so deeply. And then as we step into the invitation and we follow the instruction of what it looks like to pray, that we pray over our city. We've done prayer walking across the streets where we've scattered prayer across our city. And as we do this, the Lord hears us. He hears our cries. He hears our pleas. And he steps in and he does a work. Like, that's what I want for us as a church. When people hear our church, I want them to sense a deep affection for God. But because we pray, that there's also wide influence, not of our church name, but of the kingdom of God in our city. So look, I want us to be a church that prays, which is why at the beginnings of our church, we're doing a series here on prayer. So here's the plan for the series, all right? We'll spend the first two weeks looking at purpose and the power of prayer, all right? So preemptively, I want us to think and wrestle with like why we pray. What's the purpose of this? Why, like, why? why? Why do we pray? If God's already done all the work, if he's already done all these things, then what's the purpose of prayer? But also, like, what's the ability of our prayer? So if we step into this, okay, I'm going to take up God's invitation to pray, then what's the ability of our prayer? What's the power of our prayer? There's big promises, that Jesus gives about our prayer whenever we come to God with our requests, our petitions, our thanksgivings, all of these things, there's big, big promises. So what's the ability of our prayer? I want us to wrestle with these things. And then the final four weeks, we're going to look at Jesus' instruction on prayer. So we'll break down the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. So tonight, we're going to consider the purpose of prayer. All right. So I'm just going to go ahead and spill the beans. All right. Here's the purpose of prayer. So if you're a person that like journals, jots down notes, here it is, all right? The purpose of prayer is fellowship with God. That you get God. You come to God in prayer, not because of the things that you can get from God, but because you want God himself. 
You come and you pray and you seek him and you earnestly want him. J.I. Packer says this. He's one of my favorite theologians. If you can kind of go grab, if you're like trying to gnaw your teeth on learning more of what like the Bible has to say and good doctrine of what the Bible teaches, J.I. Packer is a good person to go to. Here's what he says about prayer. God made us and has redeemed us for fellowship with him. And look, and that is what prayer is. Nearly every teacher of the Bible would agree that there are at least kind of four different types of prayer. So here's the four that you would find in most teachers. They would say that there's a adoration or a praise type of prayer that's this worshipful, affectionate response to who God is and who his, what his character is towards us in the rest of the world. There's also confession where God has opened our eyes to our own sin and in the recognition of that, you in the light of knowing who God is, what his character is, that he's a good and kind and gracious God that when our eyes are opened to sin, that we come to pray to him, confess our sin and that he forgives us. Then thanksgiving would be a third type. This is a gratefulness for the work that God is doing in your life and those things that are happening around you where you're coming, you're bringing thankfulness to God. And then the last one is probably the one that most of us think of, which is petition, which is bringing our requests to God. So our default when it comes to prayer is this last one. It's probably petition, petition where we're bringing our requests to God. Um, at my home, we typically pray before our meals which is kind of just like a, a pretty common thing, right? Like there's nothing super special about that. We pray for uh, things in our house, different things that are going on in our lives, things that are going on in our boys' lives and their school. Um, it's precious to hear our boys pray as they get opportunities around our kitchen table. And there's just a way that you kind of see how they're growing and their understanding of the things that we're trying to work through with them as they pray. Um, but recently I noticed um, right before we would step into prayer for our meals that Cherish has kind of been prompting our boys when they get opportunities to pray. Like, hey, why don't you think about including something that you're thankful for that God has done in your own life? And as I heard this, as I was both encouraged by my wife, but also convicted because I was like, dang, I need to do that too. Because our, oftentimes our default when we think about prayer is that we're just lobbying requests to God. That we're coming, we're bringing specific things that we want from him. We want to see him do in our life, to see him do in, uh, in our life, to see him do things around us as well. And man, if we're really honest, um, I think part of the reason why prayer may seem dull for us a lot of the times is because we just think our default mode is this petition-like prayer. We're not getting the full grasp of the invitation of what God has invited us into whenever he invites us to pray and to step into fellowship and communion with God. So it can often be like request, 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 and then it, we want it to happen like instantaneously, right? We want it here and now. We live in a microwave culture, so we want to pray and then we want to see God do something specific in our life. And if we're really honest, sometimes those things that we pray for just don't happen. And so we see these big promises and it's like, man, 
Like, what's going on? Jesus says that if I come and I ask that he'll give it to me, if I knock, that the door will be open. Like, all these different things. So what's going on? Why isn't this happening? But here's what I want us to do as we're thinking about this purpose of prayer, as we're thinking and stepping into this new series, that maybe, just maybe, God isn't saying yes to all the petitions that we bring to him because he's wanting to awaken us to the fuller reality of what prayer can produce in our life. Maybe he's trying to get us to stop and to think and reflect about why the answer isn't yes, and he may be wanting to whisper into your ear, there's so much more. So much more to this invitation to come to me and to pray. So much more. I'm so much better than just the things that I can give you. I want you to come and pray and to speak with me and spend time with me and to talk with me because you get me and not just the stuff that you're asking for. So this evening, we're looking at a passage that reveals to us what can take place when we come to grips with the purpose of prayer, which is fellowship with God. So Paul, the Apostle Paul's writing the letter to the Ephesians, which is modern-day Turkey in our world right now. So if you're trying to look at a map and think, okay, where is Ephesus? It'd be in modern-day Turkey. And this letter that he wrote wasn't just for the Ephesians. It's likely a letter that's to be circulated to other areas around Ephesus as well for them to read of what Paul is instructing the Ephesians as well as the rest of the churches as well. And so the letter starts off with this incredible doxology, which is is this praise of God. So it's talking about how big and enormous God is and is also just how incredible the work that he's done for our salvation, inviting us to himself, that he's predestined this, that he's thought it through before the creation of the world even came into existence. He speaks through all of these things. And then Paul turns in verse 15 to how he prays for these new Christians. He's beginning to make this transition and making it very personal for them. And in this prayer that he says that he prays for them, he gives them three things that we see in verses 18 through 19. And this is what it says. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. So that what he's basically saying here, whenever you have the eyes of your heart, the heart is sort of like the center. It's the control center of our whole entire life. It's where our longings, it's where our desires, it's like all of the most intimate things, the feelings, our expressions, all these things reside within the core, the core center of our, our entire being, which is our heart. And he says, I want your, the eyes of that heart to be enlightened. Basically what he's saying, I want, the, I want these truths to penetrate you and to grip you so extensively that it changes your whole entire entire life. That's what he's saying here. The eyes of your heart may be enlightened. And here's the three things. So that you may know what is the hope of his calling. That's the first one. Second one, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And then third, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength? So tonight, I want us to take time to consider these three things because I believe they can transform your prayer life. 
I want us to sit and I want us to wrestle and think through thing, these things. These are things that Paul wrote that he wanted for the Ephesians. They're things that Paul wanted for his own life. And then he would also step back and say, I even want it for you. These three things that I'm saying that I pray for you, that I want for myself, like I want any person that has a relationship with Jesus to experience the realities of what I'm writing to you about. So here's like my, in my own way of trying to put these things into my own words, here's what he's basically saying to us. He says, first, if you pray, if you take God's invitation to pray, to come and fellowship with him, here's some of the benefits that come along with getting God as well. First, that you know how secure you are in Jesus. And then second, that you know how treasured you are in Jesus. And then third, you know the power of Jesus at work in your own life. When we come and we receive this invitation to pray, Paul's saying, I want this for you. I want this for me. And if you take up the invitation to pray, here's the things that come with getting God as well. So verse 18 is where we see that we um, know how secure you are in Jesus. So here's what he says. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling. We need to talk about two words here for us to understand what Paul is really stating, all right? The two words are hope and calling, all right? So hope in the English language is sort of like this wishful thinking, all right? Albert Pujols came back. We got Wainwright. We got Pujols. We got Yachty. Like they're going for the last round. I hope that they win the World Series. That's how we think about this word of hope. But in the Bible, it's a lot different, all right? In the Bible... Faith or hope is a combination both of belief as well as certainty. All right, so my home, we live in Lindenwood Park, just two minutes away from here. Um, every day at five o'clock, our mail person comes and drops off the mail. Every single, every single night. I mean, it's like clockwork. Five o'clock, we hear the little door in our um, little mailbox area, like open up, you hear it get stuffed in, we go and get the mail. So in essence, what Paul's kind of saying here, this word idea of hope, it's like me saying, I hope we get the mail today when we know that it comes at five o'clock every single day. There's this sense in this word hope when it comes to the Bible that is a hope-filled certainty. It's not wishful thinking. It's both a belief as well as a certainty that we know that is actually gonna come into fruition. So this hope-filled certainty that Paul's speaking of here is God's calling, the second word that we need to wrestle with. So what in the world does calling mean, right? Like what in the, like we hear this, like we even talking, we use this language in our everyday society. We talk about this calling that we've gotten on our life. We think about this core conviction that there's this intentionality going towards something in our own life. But Paul is speaking here in terms of our salvation, Paul is speaking of calling. He's speaking of our salvation. He's speaking about a moment or a process by which God is calling us to himself. He's calling us from something to something. All right, so here's my best way of trying to like think through this, all right? So oftentimes um, our boys, we get them out of the house to get their wiggles out as we're trying to get dinner ready, all right? So we send them out into the backyard. They go play on the swing set. They go play on the swing set. They're doing all their things. They have huge imaginations. So they're doing all this different stuff in the backyard. It's fun to sit and like just look out the window and to see all the shenanigans that they get into. But at, once dinner is done, we open up the door 
and we call our boys to leave their play, to come in from their play, into us, to their parents, and then we often have something that we give them, food, whether it be a snack or a dinner, that they come back into the house to. Well, God, when, we, when Paul's speaking of this calling, God is placing this call on our life where he's calling to us, coming, he's calling us from a life of sin to himself, but it often comes with a lot of good things like his grace and his forgiveness. This is him calling us out of a life of sin to himself into relationship with him where he gives us our deepest needs, which is a relationship with him, and he does all the work in order for us to step back into this relationship through Jesus. This calling from a life of sin to a relationship with Jesus, this thing is eternal. All right, so when God calls you, he also keeps you. So he calls us out of a life of sin into relationship with him. And not only does he do, do this, he also keeps us in this salvation. We have this eternal hope, this hope-filled certainty that we have a relationship with God that will last for forever. That's what Paul is speaking of when he says the hope of your calling here. My attempt here in my own saying is that Paul wants us to know how secure you are in Jesus, just how certain this calling that God has placed on your life, that it is something that no one, absolutely no one can take away from you. He's saying that whenever I pray for you, I pray that you would know just how secure you are in Jesus. I want you to see, I want you to feel, I want you to experience that whenever you accept this call that God has in your life, this effective call that he calls you out of your life of sin and he calls you to himself, that you are so secure in Jesus, there's absolutely nothing, nothing that you can fathom or think of that could ever pluck you out of this love that he's called you into. I want you to know this. I want you to experience this. I want you to have the sense of security that you truly have in Jesus that is not just some fabrication that I'm making up, but it's a true inward reality for you when you come in to me in belief in Jesus. That's what Paul is saying as a result when we come and we receive this invitation to pray. He's saying, I want you to know how secure you are in Jesus. You have a God that wants a relationship with you so, so much. And when you accept this invitation, one of the byproducts of it as you come and you speak with him and you get God is you also come to this deep understanding of how secure you are in Jesus. Your eternity is so safe and it's so secure because your salvation entirely rests in Jesus. It's absolutely nothing that you've done. It's everything that he's done for you. And here's the good thing about Jesus. He died, but he was resurrected from the grave. He's alive, and he's also seated at the right hand of God. Which means there's nothing that can touch Jesus. He can't go back into the tomb. There's nobody that can go and pluck anything out of the hands of Jesus. He's completely safe and secure at the right hand of God in heaven, alive. That's why in Romans chapter 8, Paul says that it's neither death nor life, 
There's no angels nor demons. There's nothing in here in the present. There's nothing, things that could happen to you in the future. There's not any powers of this world. There's no height. There's no depth. There's no created thing. There's absolutely nothing that can pluck you out of the love of God that you have in Christ Jesus because he's alive and he's seated at the right hand of God. Paul is saying, man, when you come and you receive this invitation to pray and fellowship with God, one of the byproducts, you get God, but you also grow in your understanding of just how secure you are in Jesus. So look, the more time you spend in prayer, the more certain you will be of your security in Jesus. Not only do you get God, you get assurance. Do you want your security in Jesus to grip you? Then you pray. So that's the first. The second result of spending time in prayer with God is that you grow to know how treasured you are in Jesus. See this again in verse 18, just the latter half of it. So the first part, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints. All right, so there's disagreements on what this passage, if you're trying to get into the nitty gritty, what is this, if you're trying to interpret, okay, what is God, what is Paul really stating through this? There's two viewpoints that people have. The first one is that Paul's speaking of the inheritance that we have in Christ, which is completely true, all right? The second viewpoint is that there's an inheritance that God has in us, all right? So I'm just gonna be really open with you. Nobody agreed from what I read this week on what this, this passage truly means. I'm gonna to lean towards the second that God has an inheritance in us from what Paul is stating here, all right? So I state this to you. One, because I'm a pastor that is fully human and I could be wrong, okay? <laughs> so there's one. But two, even if my interpretation here is wrong, the overall sentiment is not. And you need to know that. The overall sentiment that God has an inheritance in us, even if that's not this particular translation of what Paul's saying here in this one phrase, the rest of the Bible talks about it. 1 Peter 2 or 1 Peter 1:12 says that the angels look with wonder into the gospel at how deeply God loves us. One of the most well-known Bible passages in all of the Bible, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Look, you are so deeply treasured by your God. It seems that Paul is stating that God not only do we have an inheritance in Christ, which is true. Every spiritual blessing is how Paul starts off the book of Ephesians that we have this inheritance in Jesus, 100,000 times percent true. But it also seems that God in our salvation has an inheritance too, and it's you. Now look, this seems like a completely unfair trade. <laughs> We get God and that God gets us. We get this God that's so beautiful, 
so powerful, so glorious, so holy, so perfect, so wonderful and true. And then God gets us, yes, people that bear his image, but he also gets all of our sin. Seems like a, it seems like a bargain for us, but it seems like a terrible trade for him. But what you see throughout the Bible is that God loves us so deeply, that he treasures us so deeply that I believe Paul's trying to say this at the end of verse 18, that he, we are his inheritance in this whole work of salvation that he's been doing since the, before the world was even created. I mean, just pause and think about how involved God was in saving us. All right, so I'm gonna say three statements here. I don't remember where I got this. Like I've heard this somewhere throughout my life and throughout ministry. I can't recall, so no, it's not from me, but know that it's true. All right, so here we go. The first one is this, God the Father planned it. See, there was such a deep love and fellowship within the Godhead, Godhead, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's such a beautiful love that they experienced in their fellowship with one another before the world was even created that they could not contain it. They had to create something so that something could experience that love as well. He didn't need us. He didn't create us because he needed us, but his love was so good. It was so deep that he created the world in order to share this love with others that could be experienced. And he knew that his prized creation, us, would turn away from him whenever he created us. He knew this. He knew that it would happen. And he planned our salvation out before the world was even created, even knowing that we were gonna turn away from him. He planned this thing out. God the Father planned it. But look, God the Son paid for it. So Romans chapter five says that hardly anyone will ever go die for someone that's good, someone that's just. But Jesus raises his hand and says, even while they're sinners, even while they are still enemies towards me, I'm willing to go and die in their place. And so God the Son comes into our world. He clothes himself with human flesh. He lives the life that we are supposed to live. He dies the death that we are supposed to die. He raises from the grave, securing our salvation in himself. And then look, God the Spirit protects it. So not only does God the Father plan it, not only does God the Son pay for it, but then the Spirit is given to us where he secures it. There's nobody, absolutely nothing, that can steal your security in Jesus because you have the Holy Spirit. And look, you also cannot ruin it. If, if, if you watch the movie Hitch, you know where he says, I'm like a vault baby locked down? That's what the Holy Spirit is, right? Like he comes in and he seals you. There's absolutely nothing that can do anything to ruin this love that you have in Jesus Christ because you are so deeply treasured. The God of the universe, the Trinitarian God, was so involved in saving you that there's absolutely nothing can, that can pluck you out of that love. You're so deeply treasured. And Paul says, I want us to be a people that pray. I want us that follow Jesus to take him up on his invitation to pray because I not only want you to know how secure you are in Jesus, I also want you to grow in your understanding of just how deeply treasured you are by God. 
as you step in and you fellowship with him and you pray and you pray prayers of adoration and you pray prayers of confession and you pray prayers of thanksgiving and you bring your petitions to God, that as you come and you fellowship and you talk with him, that you grow deeply in these things. He wants us to grow in this deep, dark, eyes of our hearts to be enlightened to just how big and good and secure we are in this Jesus and how deeply treasured we are in this Jesus. But then the last thing we see in verse 19 is this, that we also would grow to know the power of Jesus at work in our life. See this in verse 19. So beginning of verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know, this is the third, what is the measurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. So look, Paul uses really substantial words here. So he says the immeasurable greatness, his power, the mighty working his strength, all of this compacted within one little verse. And so I think Paul's trying to do two things. He's trying to, he's trying to highlight how mighty God is, but he also wants to awaken the eyes of our heart to the direction by which his mighty work is going towards. All right, so look, God is so incredibly powerful and his power is directed towards you for your benefit. That's what he says here in verse 19, that you have this God that is so incredibly powerful and he uses that power directed towards you in order for you to benefit and for you to grow. Verse 20 gives us better insight to what this power is. uh, Paul gives us explicit understanding of what this power is that God works towards us. He says, this, he exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating us at the right hand, at his right hand in the heavens. So look, Paul's speaking both of resurrection power as well as ascension power here, all right? So we talked last, last week was Easter, very versed on the resurrection power, amen? But look, there's also something incredibly powerful about the ascension power that was at work that took Jesus from this world after he's resurrected from the grave to seat him at the right hand of God. Ephesians 2, 6 says this, God also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So look, think about this, all right? Not only was Jesus so powerfully resurrected from the grave, he was also taking up, he was, this power ascended him to the right hand of God. And it's such a powerful thing that it's like we're sitting there with Jesus. That's how incredibly his power is at work in us. So this ascension of Jesus, look, I don't think it gets enough love. Here's what one pastor said this week as I was reading about it. He says, we don't make much about the ascension in our Bible churches today. We emphasize Christmas and Easter, but we seem to forget the events after that. Have you ever stopped to think of the power that took him back to the right hand of God? That, my friend, is power. 
Think of the power it takes to lift a missile off its base and take it into space and the power it took to take men to the moon and bring them back, if you believe that that happened. That is the power of the physical realm. That's just the power of this world. Incredibly powerful things took human history to get so far along to create a technology to where this could actually even happen. But look, the power that took Christ to the right hand of God is the same power that is available to believers today. The Apostle Paul is saying that he prays that these new believers know, not just by this knowledge that they read from a book, but by experience, this power that is at work in them. So when we look at our lives, oftentimes when we look ourselves in the mirror, when you look in the mirror, oftentimes when you're looking at yourself, all you see is your flaws, right? You see your flaws. You see the things that you don't like about yourself. You see the things that you wish you could change, but it just feels impossible. There's things that are probably a part of your life that it feels like you've been trying to get rid of for so long. And you just may have come to this point where you're like, I just don't know if I can change. This is just probably who I am. It's just too hard. Well, look, I think Paul, if he were to like stand before us in light of this passage that we're talking about right now, he'd probably be like, what are you talking about? Do you not understand the power that is at work in your life through Jesus Christ? This power that resurrected him from the grave, not only raised him from the grave to where he stayed here, but that also ascended him to heaven where he's seated at the right hand of God. It's too hard. There's not enough power. And Paul would be like, I don't, I don't even know where to begin. People are too lost. Wait, what are you talking about? Do you know the power of my God? That God is too far off and distant in heaven that you can't have a personal relation? Do you understand the power that's at work in you? The power that's at work in you is the one that resurrected this Jesus from the grave that is keeping him at the right hand of God, ascended him out of this entire world. We think we know what power is, but our, our ideas of power are so low They don't even compare to the power of this God. And look, this is the power that's at work in you. This is the power of the salvation that Jesus is working inside of you. So look, don't talk to me about it's too hard to change or someone's too far off. Paul said, I want, I pray these things over you. I want you to know how deeply and how strong and mighty this power is at work in you because look, I want you to know that there's opportunity that this life that Jesus has given you isn't just one for the future, but it's one to be lived here and now. That you can step in to live within this kingdom of God that has broken into this kingdom of darkness. Look, there's no one that's too far off from Jesus because it's the resurrection and ascension power that's at work in you. There's nothing that's going on in your life that Jesus can't step in and help and work and tease out and kill the sin that's in your life. Of course he can. This vision of the life that he's given us that we're to live into isn't so hard and it's not so daunting. It's not so far far off that we can't step into it now. Paul's saying, no, look, there's a power that's so deeply at work in you that there's this hope that we can step into and we can live in here and now. He says, I want you to know I want you to know 
by experience how powerful this God is that's at work in you. And he says, look, if you want to, you want these things to penetrate you, if you want these things to grip you, if you want these things to transform and take over your life, he's saying, look, it happens by praying. That you take God up on his invitation to fellowship with him. So look, goodness gracious, don't you want these three things? To know how secure you are in Jesus, to know how treasured you are in Jesus, to know the power of Jesus that's at work in you. Don't you wanna know these things? Look, I want this for us. I want it for myself, I want it for you. I want it for our kids that are here. I want it for my neighbors, I want it for our city. I, I want these things. And so look, let's put it to practice. Let's be a praying church. A church that takes Jesus up at the invitation as well as his instruction to pray. So look, I, I wanna give us an application here, all right? So this is like an application that I just want for us in light of this sermon series, all right? Hopefully it's something that continues on beyond this sermon series. Hopefully it's something that just becomes ingrained in the life of our church, but I want us to be a praying church, which means we need to step into prayer, all right? So here's just like what I'm wanting to do in my own personal life. So I'm just gonna lay it before you on a screen. What I'm putting here isn't like hard, fast, set in stone that like you have to do this exactly what I'm saying, all right? Take it, tweak it, do what you need to do to incorporate it into your life. But look, let's be a praying church. Let's be a church that prays, that take Jesus up on his invitation to follow his instruction that we're a praying people, all right? So here's what I'm gonna do. Like, I encourage you to pray with your Bible open, all right? Oftentimes, we have a Bible reading plan that we're doing within our discipleship groups. We read through our Bible plans, and what do we do after we're done with the reading? Close the Bible. And then we step into prayer. And then it's like, well, I feel like I'm just praying the same things over and over again. Look, pray the Bible. If there's a passage that stood out to you in your Bible reading, like use that as the, as the lens by which you're praying the things that maybe feel very repetitive in your life. It gives you different insight in how you can bring those things to God. Maybe it's, we have these five questions that we wrestle with, like what does this passage teach me or remind me about God? Talk to him about it. God, in this passage, I was moved by this aspect of your character. God, in this passage, I was moved by the way that you've so extravagantly loved me. We also ask questions. What does this passage teach me or remind me about myself? Wrestle with that. Talk with them about it. Think about the things of Thanksgiving in your life. As things are exposed in your life, bring those things to God. Talk with them about it. He's open arms waiting to forgive you. He's a good and gracious God. Come and bring these things to him. Let's pray with our Bibles open, all right? Then the second one, 20 to 30 minutes of scheduled time. This can be uninterrupted or it can be scattered, all right? I understand we have lots of parents in here and like you're thinking, how in the, how in the world am I gonna, I don't get, I, I would have to go sit on the pot for 20 to 30 minutes if I'm gonna get alone time. Like how, what in the world are you talking about, Josh? I, I don't care, you can break it up. Do what you need to do in your life. But what could God do in terms of our intimacy and affection for him, and even in answering our prayers for the things that we do bring in petitions to him, 
if we go and we spend time with them for 20 to 30 minutes, at least three to five times per week. Look, I'll tell you one thing that I've never regretted. I've never regretted taking God up on his invitations. Not once. I can tell you a lot of regrets that I have where I didn't take God up or I didn't fall in obedience to what God has said to me. But one of the things that I've never had any regrets about is taking God up on his invitation. And so look, if we do these things, I'm willing to bet by the end of six weeks, it's like that was time well spent. The sacrifices that I needed to make in my life in order to incorporate these things, it was worth it. I want us to be a praying church. Oh my gosh, I want us to be a praying church. That the affection of Jesus is just this, whether it's body odor or acts, body spray, I don't care, that goes before us as we walk into room, that people just sense the affection of God all over us. And that he, he begins to stretch out his hand and do things amongst our city in our lives, in our church that we never could have fathomed. All because we took Jesus up on his invitation to pray. Now look, there's countless, we'll end with this, there's countless stories that talk about how God works in the lives of people through the practices of prayer. Let's just conclude with one, all right? So there's this pastor way back when, H.A. Ironside, he lived in Southern California. And as he was there, he was going around, he was preaching, he was very early in his ministry years, and he recounted visiting this old man, this wonderful godly man that lived in the backyard of his parents because um, he moved to the United States because of this bad health that he had. So he was originally from Ireland, he moved to the United States. And this uh, illness was what, galloping consumption, all right? So I think it's a form of tuberculosis. Um, we have some doctors here, you can go talk to them afterwards. All right, so... Um, He's dealing with this and he's just recounting going and sitting with this guy and just the way that he talked with God in these amazing ways. And it got to this point that Ironside was like, hey, he has just this question. Where do you learn this stuff? Where did you learn all these things about God? You, you know, I, I've studied the Bible. I've gone to the seminary classes. I've done all these trainings. I've sat under all the pastors. Like, how do you know these things about this God? And here's what he, the, this man from Ireland said. Well, this man said, I didn't get it by going to seminary because I never went to seminary. I never learned it by going to college. No one particularly taught me. Rather, I learned these things on my knees on the mud floor of a little sod cottage in the north of Ireland. There with my open Bible before me, I used to kneel for hours at a time and ask the Spirit of God to reveal Christ to my soul and open the word to my heart. And he taught me more on my knees on that mud floor that I could have ever learned in all the seminaries and colleges of the whole entire world. And look, I'm willing to bet that God has brought someone along your path that was a praying person, that whenever you talked with them about the relationship with God, that was a deep Deep affection. A sense of how do you know these things about God? And it may not be the sod cottage of an Ireland person, man, with galloping consumption. <laughs> but I bet their response would be, I labored in prayer. Let's be a church that prays. Be a church that takes God up on his invitation to pray. Let's schedule it. Let's practice it. And look, through our fellowship with God, 
Let's take Paul up. Let's take God up on what he promises about prayer that will grow to know just how secure and treasured we are in Jesus and that we'll know the power of Jesus that's at work in you. Let's pray.